items here in the Bible. Let's sit that over here. Is there children's church today? Do we know? There is? All right. Children. You can go to children's church. How's that? Are there left? My, my son missed the memo. All right, Cameron, you can go. Evelyn, yeah? There you go. Okay. Apparently, so did I. I missed the memo. All right. So, we're back in Micah after a, a brief hiatus for uh, VBS Sunday. Things look a little different this morning, wouldn't you agree? Yeah. So, uh, we're back, though. We're back in Micah, and uh, this one's a doozy. I don't know if you've read Micah chapter 3 lately, but uh, it's, it's intense. But uh, before we get to that, let me just say that so- social justice is a term today that carries a lot of baggage. It's infused with a lot of man-made, unbiblical ideas. And so we must be careful when we, when we come to the scriptures and we read about justice that we don't infuse the cultural ideas of our day into them. Okay? Biblical social justice has to do with treating others in ways that God has commanded us and that respects them as fellow image bearers of God. Every person is made in God's image. And because of that, they have innate value because of who made them and in whose image they bear. They have value. In Micah chapter 3 today, the prophet Micah has a word from God for Israelites' leaders. For Israel's leaders, the prophets, the, the court officials, the priests, who are defacing the image of God in others by denying justice to fellow image bearers. Now the question for us today is this. How do you see other people? How do you view other people? And are your actions and the thoughts of your heart, are they consistent with what you say you believe about other people? That's where we're going today. So let's go to the Word now. Grab your Bibles. Turn with me to Micah chapter 3, and if you need a Bible, make use of that pew Bible in front of you, and once you're there, I invite you to stand with me out of reverence for God's word, and follow along with me as I read. Micah 3, and I said, hear, you heads of Jacob, And rulers of the house of Israel? Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil? Who tear the skin from off my people and the flesh from off their bones? Who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from them? And break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot? like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you 
without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall cover, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come to us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. The grass withers and the flower fade, but the word of God stands forever. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word today. As hard as it is, it is for our good and for your glory. May your word challenge us this morning. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Show us what we need to hear that we don't want to hear. Make us more like Jesus today. Help us to confront uh, perhaps some, some darkness in our own souls, secret sin. Father, we pray that you would show that to us and use that to, to further mold and shape us into the image of of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. We've got three points today that'll help us walk through chapter three, and they're this justice, consequences, or injustice, consequences, and the hope of faithfulness. So let's jump right in. There's there's three groups of people here that Micah is addressing the corrupt rulers, the false prophets, and the greedy priests. First, Micah gives God's indictment to the rulers. These rulers uh, likely included court officials who were directly responsible for giving just rulings, for, for making judgments. And the word from Micah is stinging. It is stinging. Verses 1 and 2. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil? Ouch! In other words, they should have known better. They should have known better. They've made vice a virtue, and they've made virtue a vice. Micah uses the term good here as shorthand for the requirements of the covenant with Yahweh, the God, their God on high. In fact, it is in God's very nature, in Yahweh's nature, to love good and to hate wickedness. And he expects that his people would do likewise. And so to love evil and hate good equates to rebellion against God, 
Rebellion against God. Micah goes a step further in verse 9. He, he says that not only do they not know justice, but they detest it. They detest justice. From here, things only get more uncomfortable. Micah uses language here that is it's designed to shock. And it, it is a metaphor. But remember back to chapter 2, verse 8, where Micah says that they stripped the robe from those who passed by. They stripped the robe. Now here he says they didn't stop there. They didn't just stop with the robe. Now they're, now they're removing the skin from their bodies of the people. I said this is a metaphor, and I think this is part of what's going on here. Israel's enemy is the Assyrians. Had a cruel practice of flaying of flesh from off their captives just to strike fear into the hearts of their enemies. And so Micah here is using this imagery to show them who the true enemies of Israel are. Who are the true enemies here? It's their leaders. This cannibalistic imagery in verse 3 is extremely uncomfortable. This too is a metaphor. It's a way of saying that they were using the people to acquire the desires of their heart. They were using people to get what they want. And by doing this, they were defacing the image of God and others by reducing them to objects. Objects that were useful for getting what they wanted and nothing more. Our world today is not so much different than it was in Micah's day. I just learned this morning about a New York Times columnist who proposed that perhaps it's time to reconsider cannibalism. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? Vice has become virtue. In a world where the self has replaced God, good is defined as any desire that you may have. Any desire that you may have is good. Even if it runs blatantly contrary to nature. And evil is anything, any obstacle that stands in the way of you getting the desires of your heart. That's what's evil in our, in our culture today, and increasingly so. Now it's, it can be easy to paint with extremes and broad brushstrokes, but in a consumer society, a consumer society is prone to cannibalizing its own to get what it wants, to get what it desires. I mean, just think about the, the recent response in our culture to the overturning of the Roe v. Wade there was, and there still is, legitimate moral outrage because it's no longer considered a constitutional right to intentionally kill an innocent human being? Talk about calling what is evil good and good evil. And they do so because the unborn are an inconvenient obstacle to getting the desires of their heart. Or how about this stat? This is dark and troubling too, but an estimated 
40.3 million people, million people are victims of human trafficking and exploitation worldwide. 25% of that are children. Children. The adult film industry is a primary source that feeds the demand for human trafficking. This industry is a multi-billion dollar a year enterprise that is larger than every major sports league combined. Every major network television company combined, larger than Amazon, Google, and Netflix. We don't like to talk about it, but it's out there. And the problem isn't just out there. If we're honest with ourselves and we're paying attention, the church is not immune to this. Let's not be naive. The church is not immune to this temptation. So let me just... Let me just say this. Where you go on the internet when no one's looking, it fuels a demand for evil. It fuels the demand for human trafficking. It feeds an industry that is wicked and evil and is opposed to the things of God. It fuels an industry that defaces the image of God and other people. You might not think it hurts anybody and no one's looking, but it hurts people. And it's evil. This evil industry exploits and harms women and children, making them objects for consumption. And this horrifically defaces the image of God and the weak and the vulnerable. Or how about this? We'll get a little bit lighter. What about this term that so many companies use? HR. HR, human resources. Eugene Peterson laments this when he writes these words, resource identifies a person as something to be used. There's nothing personal to a resource. It's a thing, stuff, a function. Use the word long enough and it begins to change the way you view a person. Started out harmlessly enough as a metaphor, and as such was found useful, I guess. But when it becomes habitual, it erodes our sense of the person as a soul, relational at the core, and God dimensioned. Perhaps in more subtle ways, consider this how might you, even subconsciously, be using your relationships? to benefit you at their expense. Whether it's to climb the corporate ladder, to improve your social or or political position or, or whatever. How do you view people? How do you view people? Now let's look at Micah's words for the prophets and the priests. They they lead the people astray, crying peace when their bellies are full and crying war against those who put nothing into their mouths. These prophets were only concerned with making a profit. What goes into their mouths determines the message that comes out of their mouths. Verse 11 says, The priests teach for a price. They are driven by their desires, not by the Lord. 
And this is no different today. There's, there's a perverse movement of ministry leaders with large platforms who know how to tell you what you want to hear and bathe it in Christian lingo. It's not gospel, it's law. There's no gospel there. They don't talk about sin. They don't talk about your need for Jesus. They talk about how you need to look within and believe in yourself. That is not in the Bible. They gather massive followings and misuse the Bible to promote blessings if you give to their ministries. That your money will be a seed that will blossom and and bring you prosperity and health. It will bring you your best life now. Plain and simple, they are exploiting people to fuel put fuel in their private jets to build bigger mansions, to keep up an image, to present an example of what they promise. I said this a few weeks ago, be careful who you listen to on the internet, church. There's a lot of stuff out there that is not good. Even if they have millions of followers. Using and exploiting people for personal gain defaces the image of God and others. God will punish it. That's Micah's word to the leaders of his day. So let's move on to consequence. That's our second point. The consequence of, of their injustice is, is the punishment of God, and there's great irony in their punishment. At the end of verse 11, Micah says that these leaders lean on the Lord... They lean on the Lord and they say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. This is their response. Micah confronts their sin with boldness. And their response is, Isn't isn't the Lord among us? We're the people of God. We've got Jerusalem, we've got a temple. Isn't God among us? Nothing bad's going to happen to us. Micah, calm down. Go be quiet. You know, go bring that message somewhere else to people who really need it. The court officials who denied justice and exploited the people, verse 4 says that when trouble comes to them, they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them. or the prophets who were supposed to lead the people into the light of God's truth, but instead told lies to feed their faces. Verse 6 paints a vivid picture of, of their visions from God being eclipsed. The sun will go down, and they will see only darkness. And the priests who ministered in the temple and presumed upon God's presence because it was the temple that, that manifested the presence of God on earth. We have the temple. How can disaster come to us if we have the Lord among us? Micah says that Zion, the great city of Jerusalem, will be plowed like a field, and the temple along with it, a heap of ruins. You think God is with you? This is the most... Stark example of God removing his presence 
You're presuming upon my presence, he says. Well, here you go. The thing that you look to the most, to, to presume upon my presence, I'm going to take it away. I'm going to mow it down. It's going to be a field. It's going to be a heap of ruins. I'm taking my presence away. This is the judgment of God. The very removal of his presence. And people are no different today. In your sin than the people of Micah's day, we're no different. We've all sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God and there is a judgment to come for all mankind. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, he says this, chapter 9, verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Just as there is a point of no return for the leaders to turn from their sin and turn back to the Lord, there is a point of no return for all humanity, and it's, it's death. It's appointed for all to die once. Then comes judgment, and it will be too late at that point to turn to the Lord. And God will give his perfect justice to those who rejected him, the absence of his presence in an eternal hell. So what hope is there for mankind? If we're no different than the people of Micah's day in our sin, what hope is there? This is our last point, the hope of faithfulness. In verse 8, Micah contrasts his ministry with that of the false prophets. Where they were faithful, he, where they were faithless, he was faithful. Micah 3.8 says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Power and might bracket the description of his ministry. And this shows that he had courage. He had courage to face the opposition of his day. Even if he stood alone, he had courage. The Spirit of the Lord was with him, meaning that he was guided by the Lord and not by the desires of his heart. His message was not determined by what was put into his mouth like his failed colleagues. So in faithfulness, Micah declared to the nation and to its leaders their sin. As hard as that was to do, he did it. As unpopular as that would have made him, he did it. As you could imagine, this was, this was not popular. In fact, Micah could have been killed for a message like this. They could have branded him a traitor and accused him of treason against his nation. In Micah's day, the, the Assyrian army was knocking on their doors the northern kingdom had already fallen. Things did not look good for Judah. What happens next? We, we hear Micah's words, do they kill Micah? How do they respond? Do the, do the people repent? Does, disaster, does the disaster that Micah describes, does it come to Jerusalem, to Judah? Does it come to them? Micah doesn't say, but we have the benefit of a prophet 
a century later, under circumstances very similar, only replace Assyria with Babylon, has a similar message. It's the prophet Jeremiah. And he wrote about how people responded to Micah's message. Listen to what he writes in Jeremiah 26, 16 and 19. And notice that he quotes Micah's words from verse 12 verbatim. He says, Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. Isn't that incredible? The leaders and people of Judah turned back to the Lord and were spared great disaster because one man had courage to speak faithfully, to speak God's truth to a nation and its sin. Church, we, we know from Peter's words in 1 Peter 2.9 that we today, church, are a holy nation. We are the holy nation of God today. Our local church here is, a, is the visible expression of that, of that nation, of that kingdom. And God is just as concerned today as he was in Micah's day that we love what is good and hate what is evil among his people, his church. May you, as Micah did, rely on the spirit of the Lord within you and may you, as Micah did, have, have loving courage to confront sin in the church especially. When you see a brother or sister caught in sin, will you confront them? Will you call them back to the Lord? Will you plead with them to come back? Come back to the Lord? James captures the beauty of this at the end of his New Testament letter, listen to what he says in, in 5, 19, and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's a beautiful thing. It's a loving thing when you see sin in another brother or sister, to, to call it out, to call them to come back to the Lord. This is hard, especially in our culture, because another moral evil in our culture is to judge another person. To judge another person. But Micah did this for God's people in his day, and they repented, 
And God withheld the disaster that he was bringing. Now notice that Micah didn't actually save anybody. He, he only pointed them to the Lord, the only one who could save them. He pointed them to the Lord. And it's the same for us today. We don't actually save anybody, but we point them to Jesus, the only one who can. You see, Micah was a a foretaste, a shadow of a greater prophet to come. This prophet would be given the spirit of God without measure. This greater Micah would be perfectly faithful and just where all others before him had failed. Hear these words of Jesus from Luke 4. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. But the leaders of Jesus' day would not tolerate him or his message because he was an obstacle. He was a threat to the desires of their heart, the power that they, they craved. And Jesus allowed them to treat him unjustly, to nail him to a cross the only righteous person to ever live would bear God's just judgment for your sin and for mine and for the sin of the world. And it was there on that cross that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he would experience the absence of God's presence that we all deserved. Jesus was treated unjustly at the hands of sinful men. He bore the just punishment of God that you and I deserved. He experienced the absence of God that we have coming to us in our sin. All to forgive your injustice, to forgive your sins, to forgive your rebellion and your rejection of God. And he rose again as the first fruits of resurrection life to come for all who turn from their sin and call out to Jesus to forgive them. And now, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will, he will judge the world in righteousness. Today, just as it was in Micah's day, it's not too late. It's not too late. Today is the day of salvation. If you have never called out to Jesus to save you, call out to him today. Ask him to forgive your sin, to save you from God's judgment and to give you life. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He will answer you. He will not turn his face from you because the blood of Jesus covers all your sin. If you're not sure that you are right with God today, if you're not sure what will happen to you when you stand on that day in judgment before God, I want you to know for sure today 
I want you to know for sure today, if that's you, I want to invite you to, to pray a prayer with me. A prayer that calls out to God from your heart to save you, to forgive you. So I'm going to pray this as we close. These aren't magic words. It's about expressing your heart to God. And so if you want Jesus to save you today and you've never called out to him before, pray with me now from your hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that I have rejected you and rebelled against you by choosing to live for the desires of my heart and not for what is good. I know that my sin has made me broken and has hurt people made in your image. I know that I deserve God's just punishment for my sin. I know that I deserve death and separation from God and hell. And I'm sorry for my sin. I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me. Forgive me because I believe that you lived a perfect life that I have not. Because I believe that you died on the cross in my place to pay for my sin. Because I believe that you rose again to give me new and everlasting life. And I trust you alone, Jesus, to save me and nothing that I have done. Now please, Lord, fill me with your power, with your Holy Spirit, and with justice and might to love what is good, to hate what is evil. In Jesus' merciful and gracious name I pray. Amen. Church, let's, let's sing now this final song together, a song of rejoicing.